Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Welcome back, everybody, to Podside. This is Carlo. Uh, as usual, I am accompanied by my trusty co-host, Pete. Hey, guys. And today we're uh, joined by Ilimani Ferreira. Hi. And we're going to be talking about um, Simon or Simon Jimenez's debut novel, The Vanished Birds, uh, space opera, which uh, I'll say right up front. I love this book. Um, so do we want to just get into perhaps what the synopsis is? Um, sure. Or you know what? Let's do. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I did. I put everyone on the spot, didn't I? Um, <laughs> That's all so right. So Ilimani, let me ask yeah. you this because uh, I think you had recommended this the last time you were on. Ooh, yeah. Hey, Chewy, how yeah. you doing? Yeah, we, we forgot to introduce <laughs> Chewy. Hey, buddy. <laughs> Chewy thinks that the squeaky ball is how you operate the jump drive. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Ilimani, you had recommended this to us when we had you on to talk about your book, Terminal 3. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to ask you, so I'm guessing that you had read this by then. And what was your experience? Well, uh, first, let me tell how I discovered this book. It was a total accident. Uh, I was uh, reading some, uh, I mean, I love sci-fi. Uh, I was reading some uh, recent novels that were a little bit lackluster. And uh, then I found this list, you know, of someone, hey, uh, this year has been very difficult, 2020, right, for new uh, writers. So there, there's a list of all the new releases coming up this year. And uh, then I, I went through that list. It was a, uh, and uh, I, because, you know, I, I really want to try something different. So I bought the two books that uh, had uh, uh, Latino surnames. Mm -hmm. One of them was from uh, Simon or Simon Jimenez or Jimenez. And, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, I would just say Jimenez. And, uh, man, it, and it sat on my, uh, Kindle for a while. I was reading other stuff. And then, and then I finally read it after someone said it's really good. It was really good. Uh, and, um, I remember that I had about it. And, uh, man, <laughs> that was a, a discovery. You know, I love space opera. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it happened. It was uh, it was surprising because it was a uh, his debut novel. It feels you know the the command of the the of style is so strong with this novel, and the, and this story is so riveting that uh, uh, I mean, yeah, and uh, that's why. And then we had uh, you you guys interviewed me for Terminal Three, and at the end you asked me what I was reading, and I just I had just finished it, and uh, 
I was taken aback and oh my god, oh my god, uh, you know, the vanished birds, it's it's blew my mind. And uh apparently yeah. it's blew your mind too. <laughs> yeah. I mean uh, I I have to admit that you'd mentioned it and I put it on my sort of like on my list, and then it showed up on the locust list. And I said, okay, hold on. Let me move this forward. Let me prioritize this. And I picked it up. Like I, I finally like picked it up and it was like, like you said, like from page one, I was just like, just as if it's almost as if I had been caught by a current and like I'd gone into water and the current just took me. And that's the way it felt reading this. Like I have not read a book in the last couple of years that uh, has really resonated that strongly with me. Um, and more so in space opera, which I find to be sadly lacking in a lot of sense. Like it doesn't really call to me mainly because there's a lot of leaning on old tropes. Either they're yeah. trying to write star Trek or they're trying to write uh, star Wars uh, and either way, there's a lot of sort of imperialism that's, that's sort of baked in, that's never really examined, uh, and, and, and also, uh, at a high level. So usually you get like, you get like the Dune treatment, which Dune is fine. I love Dune. Don't get me wrong, but I don't need 50 other Dune books where it's only the, the, the high arist, uh, the aristocrats of the, of the world that are really mover you know, you're following the story because they're the ones that are moving the story. Yeah, I know. The, uh, the Vanished Birds are about, you know, the blue-collar people, you know, that uh, get, you know, all the commodities, uh, you know, transported. And it's so, and it's amazing, you know. Yeah. It's so, probably the best first chapter I've read in a long time. Oh, my God, that first chapter. <laughs> yeah, I... I was wondering where it was going because I was like, is this going to be the rest of the book? Because honestly, it, it, it reads like sort of like, you know, it's a space opera because it's out on the, it, it's on the, on the blurbs, right. Yeah. <laughs> or the descriptions, but you read that first chapter, which is just this Umbai five. Right. And, and of course it's got like that futuristic sounding name, which is a planet, you know, it's not earth, but it feels like it could have been some sort of sugar plantation or, you know, something that's directly out of like the Gilded Age. Yep. It feels old. Uh, and that's sort of a, a really interesting contrast because it's to, to, to maybe reference uh, a, a somewhat canceled uh, person, Joss Whedon uh, managed to make like the, the, the planets that uh, they visit in Firefly all feel sort of old Westy, right? Um, but not quite the same way that this does. This feels like for real, like something that is out in the backwaters of some yeah. you know, empire or whatever. Uh, but go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I was, no, no, I, I know that you want to, you want to talk about it. <laughs> I totally agree about the first chapter, what you said. And yes, uh, at some point there's these spaceships that show up, you know, the transporters, uh, the transport ships, but uh, it could be a dragon, right? And that's because of that feeling that could be fantasy, uh, stays there. And, uh, what you mentioned about, uh, 
it conveys a certain past, but at the same time, the society that starts with that very rustic setting, right? That uh, then we get to understand when he goes to you know the the uh, Pelican Station, but also to the past that uh, was the origin of the station. It's uh, you see that it's some sort of uh, imperialist society. Uh, you know, it's an empire, but it's not an empire as we've seen before. An empire grounded in, you know, around government, right? But uh, it's all about the corporation, owned by corporation in this case. And uh, it almost means, it makes me feel like, uh, feel, think about, you know, uh, maybe it, that's where we are headed, actually. That's a, that's a book that actually dares you to think ahead and uh, think what the things to come, the dangers to come, more mm -hmm. specifically. And uh, when you think about, uh, you know, Elon Musk's uh, backed coup in Bolivia, right, for all that lithium that uh, is in the salar of Uyoni, you can think a little bit about what Mumbai Corporation and the parallel. I, I, I mean, at least that, that, that's, uh, that was my take. Yeah, I, I think you bring up something really, really interesting here because that's exactly what I like. I, the minute I started realizing that Umbai Corporation is basically like the the entirety of this this space opera, like the breadth of the of the empire, uh, is mainly just a mercantile empire. Yeah. Um, and and it's really interesting and it's thought through. Space Venice, uh, yeah, in a certain, certain way. Yeah, I mean, and and what you said about Elon Musk and like, I I really really dislike the whole idea <laughs> of a privatized space exploration. Like every time I see, like even even people that I know that work with, <laughs> sort of contracts uh, that are that are. Uh, adjacent to NASA and they're clapping because SpaceX managed to land their rocket. I'm like thinking to myself, Oh my God, why, why are you doing this? No, don't, well, the, don't the clap. Funny, the funny thing about it is that the, at, at very least, at least the theoretical power is still in the hands of the government. Like if they had the will, this problem could end tomorrow easily. It's just through like we've created a social system where those guys are handing out the checks right now and yeah. the politicians aren't scared. Uh, I, I, um, I, this, that part of it wasn't brand new to me. One of the things about this book that fascinated me, and I, I probably play this game all the time guys, but I, you know, you know, when you look at a book and you start thinking of it as a blend of other authors, Mm -hmm. yeah. And so this the 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 corporate outlook and that sort of thing was very CJ Sherry to me. You know, like down below station and that sort of thing. And and I mean I I um I commented about Delaney uh before the episode and then uh Carlo helpfully pointed out that you know there's that's actually referenced so it's not like, you know, that wasn't a deep cut on my part. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean it, it. It's it's not. I don't think it's it's like um, 
it's not like advertised. They don't make a big deal out of it, but uh, I believe it's Nia and uh, the captain of the Debbie, which is a hilarious name for for a ship until you find out what the backstory is. Yeah. Um, and uh, the uh, such a great name, Sartorius Moth. Oh, that's so good. Your favorite character in that book. Um, yeah, he's great. He's great. And, uh, and I do want to point out that there is a lot of queer representation in this book. Um, it is not – front and center it's not made a big fuss about but it's it's there if you know where to look yeah yeah um which is which is a a delightful you know sort of refreshing thing to, to find um in on both counts you know the, the queer representation and the the fact that it you know simon or simone did not find it necessary to really make it a big like make it a big splash about it uh, it's there and and of course also um the boy or aru uh later on is also um definitely definitely queer if not uh definitely uh, ambivalent uh, yeah. not not exactly on the cis spectrum if you will yeah. <laughs> no yes he's yeah, he's certainly not straight he might be <laughs> yeah. either gay or bisexual <laughs> yeah for, yeah at the very least bisexual yeah, yeah. um so uh let, let me see if I can take a crack at uh, sort of the synopsis here because it, it is it is rather it, – it's difficult and it's somewhat challenging because this is for uh, – this may be the first time in a long time in several years that I've read a, a book that feels like it's completely third-person omniscient where it – you are not following X or Y character. You, those characters are part of the story, but you are following the story. Um, and so the, the setting is, as we'd mentioned, a corporatized, uh, spatial, a space mercantile empire, um, where the story opens on Umbai five, where they, uh, they, they harvest Duba seeds, which seems to be just a monoculture that that's the only thing that they do, uh, on, uh, the fifth village on that planet. And you follow Kaeda, who is the initial character that opens the, the, the book, uh, as he sort of, uh, falls for the ship captain, Nia Imani, who, only shows up every 15 years, his time. Uh, and she is no older because she is able to jump, uh, through the, what they call the pocket. Um, another thing I want to point out as a brief aside is the fact that Jimenez knows what he's doing. He knows which elements he's playing with. So none of this is super over explained. Um, and the pocket has different sort of currents within it. Uh, so sometimes the currents will be, will, uh, slow down time only X amount. Maybe it'll slow it down even more, or it will run slightly, uh, in tandem with real, you know, outside of the pocket time. Uh, in, in Umbai five's case, the current that she takes through the pocket lasts every 15 years while she goes and picks up the, the crops that are, that are gathered there. And we follow basically Kaeda's life. Uh, as she comes back uh, several times, and in the meantime, in, in between one of those jumps, they find a wreckage, and the boy appears, which we later know uh, as Arrow. Um, 
and uh, he raises him. And then after a while, uh, like, you know, raises him past like adolescence. And then Nia shows up and decides to pick him up. And he, I forget, does he uh, ask her to take him with her or does she, I don't remember now. Yeah. I believe he did ask. Yeah. Unless I lost my mind, which is possible. No, I think I think you're right. Because uh, so Arrow then, was an outsider that was not welcome to that society, so it would be better. Well, yeah, and he's uh, to to be clear at at the time that th- we we first meet him, he is mute. Uh, mm-hmm. It it turns out that it is sort of like a selective mutism or something to that effect. Um, but he does not speak for a long time, okay. and the only thing that he carries with him from his past that Kaeda give gave him was an old flute that uh actually Nia had given to Kaeda as a gift and he gifts it to the kid and he that's the only thing he plays on the ship and it causes like a turmoil. Um long story short they get back to Pelican Station which is one of the is it five birds? I forget. Four. Four. Uh w- these massive space stations that are all named after birds, Thresher, Pelican, and this is Pelican Station. Uh, and it comes to the attention of uh, the people in Pelican Station that Nia is carrying a boy, uh, and that starts the rest of the story sort of unfolding, which is the fact that um, then the story jumps to Fumiko Nakajima, uh, to then tell us about her backstory. It, it, it jumps backwards in time, like a thousand years to the last few decades or, or last century on earth, um, where she has basically designed, like she was, a, she loved going to the conservatory and watching the, the preserve where the birds were specifically the pelicans. And, uh, and to be clear, Fumiko is genetically, modified but her mother as an actress decided to make her uh as per the text ugly um so that she could concentrate on her studies and become like a a a prominent uh sort of intelligent person scientist engineer and uh fumiko is a bit of a monster (laughs) (laughs) Uh, she's an awful she is an awful awful person uh who because she had this uh she never viewed herself as uh sort of uh, attractive in any way shape or form uh manages to start a relationship with um shit i'm forgetting her name uh anyway the thing is that they break up and after a while, uh, because she's, she's been called to Umbai corporation on earth to then, uh, start their space program. And she has to leave and cannot leave for something like 15 years or some crap like that. It's a, it's, it's a, a, a long time. Um, and there, and she cannot actually have contact with the outside world due to non-disclosure agreements and whatnot. So they basically break up. And even then, like her, her ex lover is somewhat willing to be game to wait for her, but then meet somebody 
And that's where, like, basically Nakajima decides that, fuck it. Uh, I don't care about this person. And it's horrible because there's like some last, last uh, communications between her or a one way communication from her lover to, to uh, Nakajima or I'm sorry, to Fumiko. And it's like this horrible situation, like in in the outskirts of new Orleans or something like that. It's just awful. Um, Just, you know, people going at each other's throats because there's perceived scarcity and uh, yeah, sort of we, we jump forward to find out that she's come out of sort of a, a cryo sleep uh, and found out that, that Nia has this boy and she wants her to take a contract that basically has her uh, wandering in space for 15 years where she cannot actually go back into Umbai allied space because she wants to keep the boy a secret until he, he has some sort of power that no one knows about. And she wants it to come to fruition without Umbai getting its, its claws into him. And that causes a rift with her old crew that we've come to lo- know and somewhat love. And she takes on a brand new crew. Um, and it's, it's sort of interesting because this is where she, where Jimenez decides to sort of deconstruct or change the, this idea of found family and like her, the, the initial found family with, you know, nurse and the other two, the other people is just, they just tell Nia to fuck off. That's not what they, they signed on for. They're not interested in that. And with the exception of one person, everyone leaves. Uh, and she has to take on brand new crew and we need to, you know, part of that is, uh, is Fumiko's, um, I forget, is he like an assistant to her or some sort of ambassador to her, uh, who is Sartorius Moth again, great name. Uh, and he becomes sort of like an interesting right hand man, uh, to, to Nia. And, uh, it turns out that near the end of their stint, uh, Arrow, who now speaks and, and so on. Uh, is able to manifest his power, which is to jaunt, which is a no time, you know, between one second and the next, he can jump to anywhere in the galaxy. As soon as Umbai finds out about this, they basically destroy everyone, <laughs> like the ship and everyone that's been holding the secret is basically uh, either marooned or left to die somewhere or what have you, and they take the boy with them. And not long after that, suddenly there's like these little shuttle buses, uh, space shuttle buses, uh, that can do these jaunts. And that just explodes the expansion of the Umbai empire outwards. And it just, every, the money starts flowing. Uh, and we, we go back to Umbai five and by then Umbai five has been somewhat gentrified by the tourists. Uh, so, I mean, I don't want to spoil the ending or anything like that, but this is sort of like the setting and this is sort of like the, the, the central conflict, which is at that point, they are sort of left in limbo and they, they, they don't know what to do. They, they obviously Nia is heartbroken, but she doesn't know what to do to get Arrow back. Um, did I miss anything? I mean, there's, there's like a a thousand other smaller plot points that I'm probably missing here. Did a great job summarizing. I started as not linear in a linear way. So that was impressive, Carlo. Well, I mean, I, I just find it 
I, I just realized it today. I was just like thinking about it and I thought to myself, holy shit, dude, he, the, <laughs> the pocket, the idea of the pocket is a metaphor for the story itself because the story can go backwards, forwards. Yep. It can slow down nice. time. It can accelerate yep. time. You can jump a thousand years, you know, all that it's stuff. So, it's so great. Is there elegance in terms of style? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and, uh, I just love the fact that he chose this, this very strange third person omniscient because it, it just sort of, you follow the story along like a current itself and it jumps to each one of these very fully rounded characters that he didn't really need to spend all this time developing if we're not going to spend a lot of time with them, you know, but he did it and each one of them feels like obviously some of the the background the more background characters aren't quite as rounded out but they feel real they feel like real people um and you, you just sort of jump between these different people to find out you know oh this is this is where the story goes yep i i'm honestly i've got to give you a lot of uh credit carlo because there's no way i could have gotten through all that without making an umbaya joke <laughs> Boo. <laughs> Boo. No, it's, it's all right. That, that's a good that's a good one. I hadn't really made, put that one together. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um so I so have anyway, a I, oh, No, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Pete. Well, I I have a question that's sort of sidetracky. Is that okay? No. Okay. So oh, no. there's a um there's a point at which Arrow starts speaking and he describes what his life was before he was picked up with the, with the silent people and the playing of the interest instruments and the breaking bones and the nice quiet one and all of that. And I'm wondering if that was Umbai. Mm. Yeah, uh, I hadn't thought of that. So I don't think so, uh, but it's, uh, it's possible, but I not, don't think it's likely. Uh, they suggest uh, at some point when they go to that desert planet uh, that uh, you know there's just that uh, uh, custodian that's basically taking care while the because it's, it was basically a planet where of the festivals of music where musicians from all across the galaxy would come over and then Mumbai decide to expel everybody because, you know, the planet was in a crossroads of currents that uh, would be perfect for a hub, and th but they never got to build a hub. So I think uh, those artists, because it, it was supposed to be, if I remember well, the silent ship, right? It's a, a ship that uh, of, of musicians that were very... Have you seen that movie? The I, I, I don't know the title in English. It's uh, it's basically... It's, uh, Oh, oh man, I, I wish I had taken notes. Uh, so it's a uh, the right. It's based on a novel that's from a Nobel Prize winner whose name I also forgot. And there's this movie uh, that's basically uh, about a, a, pia a, a piano teacher that's Is that totally the psycho. Oh, the pianist? No, it's the piano teacher. It's uh, it's a French movie. Mm, okay. So and basically, she's a uh, you you. Yeah, you'd think that artists, no, they're elevated, etc. No, <laughs> those people are reptilian and psychos uh, as hell. And uh, <laughs> so that, that that's a, a little bit the idea of that ship where you know he lived like a slave, you know, for that master that was a cello player that would you know uh, 
uh, torture him and break his bonds if uh, he did not uh, polish or him, he made too much noise or he did not polish her cello properly. So. <laughs> right. Well, I, I I always thought that this the 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 quiet ship was sort of like uh, is sort of like a, a a version a musical version of like the Event Horizon ship once it jumped. <laughs> you know, oh it's God, like yeah. Jesus Christ, why? <laughs> Because that's the thing, like none of the it. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but none of the uh, the the crew members, even the quiet one, they all wear masks, yeah. uh, and they're they're not really described as people. And and why would they? Because they're just inhumanly cruel to Arrow. Uh, and you know, obviously, after he tells that story and like his background, like obviously. Why wouldn't he be quiet? <laughs> Why wouldn't he not speak for several years? You know, uh, yeah, that's Jesus where the Christ. rewards were for sure. Oh, for sure, yeah, yeah. I I, I liked a lot that because it's also a commentary on the kind of art that can exist in a very corporate-driven reality, right? So it's a kind of art that you sacrifice on your humanity, you know, to to become a, so all those artists. They are not uh, employees of uh, uh, the corporation, but they are clearly serving that reality, right? Providing some kind of uh, art that uh, they had lost their humanity, you know, to reach a certain level of perfection, but at at the same time uh, cold, right? And the counterpoint was that planet of the festivals where all those indie musicians would come go, and uh, but at the same time that planet was destroyed by Mumbai, so. That that it's if you, I mean, uh, Jimenez doesn't make a connection between the ship and the planet, but I did, and uh, so I think it was a subtle, subtle commentary on that. Well, I mean, I think it's one of these things where it's it's obviously it's something that I I I'm always thinking about, like part of what is never really commented on. When you have like, oh, we're going to have generation ships and we're going to grow our own crops. And I was like, well, okay, which, which animals are we going to choose that survive? Which are the ones that we're going to take with us? And which are the ones that we're going to say, fuck it. We don't need, you know, we don't need the naked mole rat because it's not useful to us. Uh, but, you know, that's not the point, right? This is the 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 melancholy of having these beautiful intricate and enormous space stations named after birds that don't exist anymore yeah yeah well yeah. and you can uh, with generation ships you can say the same things about the people too i mean you're well yeah they, i mean obviously yeah <laughs> just saying nobody's getting a good deal out of that i wouldn't get on one of the damn things so i mean I, i'm just saying that to a certain extent, if we're not thinking about how capitalism is going to affect space travel, for instance, we are not thinking about how it's going because that's what capitalism does. It, it manages to insinuate itself into like the upstream and narrow that stream to just a tiny trickle of what is available because that's what it does best. It figures out how to frame and narrow down choices. True. Yeah. It reminded me a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, that transition, right? Uh, 
of uh, the pre and post internet realities in the 90s you know how you know uh, i mean uh, if uh, you had a chance to live far away from uh, like uh, in my case for example i i moved to france in the early 90s i was a kid my mom went there for her uh, phd program and uh, yeah, uh, everything. Uh, we had to write letters. You know, to, I, I wrote letters to my friends that I could, I could actually post, and would take weeks to get to Brazil. And uh, then there was this, and of course, phone calls were extremely expensive. We could not afford it for my mom's uh, scholarship. Uh, so sometimes, you know, someone was celebrating birthday, we would call for one minute, and that's it. We cannot afford more. Bye. <laughs> and then. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and then those magic day where I got a fax, you know, a machine that oh my god, can send our letters immediately now. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> and then, yeah. And then the internet came and everything, but at the same time it was a little bit restrictive at first, right? Like uh, a little bit like that Mumbai uh, models uh, uh, time tra uh, space travel, right? So. Mm -hmm. uh, there's just a few providers that were very, it was very expensive at first and. Uh, for limited time, so I remember back then in our house in Brazil, we could afford ten hours a week. <laughs> right. Well, I I think that the uh, the planet that you're re referring to here, uh, it, I, I believe it's called Ariadne, uh, okay. which is used to be like this planet of musicians and the arts and all that stuff. And there's like they just meet this one guy who's just you know drives around between the different uh, crumbling. Uh, bases and and uh, uh, communication rays, and feeds the dogs that are, that were left behind. Um, and he's yeah you know, he's sort of like resigned to his fate, but he tells them you know like yeah they they came by and they said that um, you know that we should agree to this, and uh, the the artists didn't want to do that, so they slowly cut off all the all the different currents that uh, flowed. They, they, they made sure that the, fl the currents flowed around the planet and they never stopped there. So basically they, they created an embargo and yeah. starved, starved them out uh, without a gun ever being fired. Which is so, exactly what the United States does. I mean, what? that's, that's yeah. news to me. Sorry. I've been told, sorry. <laughs> I, I've, been to I've been told that uh, people didn't know that we were being lied about, about certain things. <laughs> Yeah. I, I, I know you do that, but I had to say it. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, it's good. Yeah. It's, it's, what is it that there's a communication, uh, uh, theory where, you know, it's, it's not enough that a and B know things, but you need to express it outwardly so that a knows that a, that B knows it and B knows that a knows it and so on. Yep. Uh, anyway, uh, go on ahead. Um, yeah, just to, to it's my last mention to that planet because it's something I forgot. Uh, again, to, uh, you have Ariadne that was that planet that had a free artist that were, you know would express their artistic truth, and then you have the silent ship. That uh, so the silent ship for me is a little bit the gig economy, you know, that's uh, validated by you know like uh, the venture capitalists, you know, like. So that's why they were so, you know, uh, focused on being efficient and being, uh, anyway, that's my last comment to that. <laughs> no, I mean, I think, I think it's an interesting because it, it, that if I'm remembering correctly, that little, uh, sort of interlude, uh, 
happens more or less a little bit after the the midpoint of the book. Uh, and it gives a, a like a really great view of what they're up against. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and to be clear, that's that they stop there because they're unable to get into sort of Umbai allied uh, territory. Yeah. So this is like a planet that's on the periphery. It's sort of been yeah, cast out. Yeah, if I remember well. Uh, the the custodian that uh, Umbai left there, uh, basically he was so desperately lonely that uh, he hired them to fix something that he could fix himself. But uh, he wants to see people, you know, and he had the budget. So, <laughs> yeah. After after a year of pandemic, I think everyone can relate. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> I think everyone can relate. Can you just call me up? Just I don't know. Do say say whatever bullshit you want. I just want to hear a human voice, man. <laughs> <laughs> these dogs are nice but uh yeah. i mean <laughs> yeah but yeah uh so do do we want to get into a little bit of spoilers to to drive home the the capitalist angle uh i read the book so go go, go wild. <laughs> <laughs> okay uh so uh, anyone listening if you haven't read the book or you're 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 averse to spoilers, you have some sort of allergy to them. Stop listening here. Go read the book and come back. Uh, I uh, should throw. Anyway. I should throw Chewy the squeaky ball again, just so he can make an alert sound. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be interesting. Uh, so anyway, uh, when Umbai finally gets a hold of Arrow. Uh, they basically just hold him in like some fucking tube and just draw blood from him. Like the, the, all the little space shuttles that are like jauntily, you know, jaunting back and forth across the galaxy at a moment, you know, like in a, in the blink of an eye, all are given a chip that is able to basically, it's, it's a chip that is surrounded by one drop of arrows blood in it. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know how much more elegantly you can put that <laughs> capitalism is going to drain us all dry. It doesn't give a shit about us. Uh, but that is a beautiful, beautiful way to, to demonstrate it. And, uh, you know, he's just being like bled dry every, every so often to fill these little, uh, chips and, and, you know, the, the, the demand for them yeah. and, they have to control the demand as well, which is uh, another thing that apparently capitalism loves to do. <laughs> what? For scarcity? What are you talking about? Um, so, yeah. I, and, of course, the idea here is that uh, supposedly they have some sort of plan in place to figure out how his power works so they can sort of synthesize it. But they're in no hurry to do so. Uh, so yeah, it, it's just, uh, it's just a, a horrifying, like even yeah. more horrifying than the silent ship for arrow. And, uh, you know, once you realize that's what's being done, you understand why everyone needs to go rescue the guy, yeah. the poor kid. Basically. Yeah. Because that I found that so beautifully creepy, uh, the, the aspect where basically, uh, Mumbai could actually, you know, research and find a solution because, uh, 
the consequence for uh, for uh, relying on arrow for all the galactic transportation is that uh, they could just you know make one ship at a time you know uh, move right. So, but same time they realize you know what that's profitable. Let's make that. Uh, uh, let's turn that problem into a profitable uh, thing. So basically, they created uh, uh, some people need to wait weeks, right, to to be able to to travel. While VIPs, you know, get to go uh, on the spot, and they charge for that. Mm-hmm. So that's so that was so creepy that they created those. Uh, they use that, you know, that uh, instead of. Uh, being, you know, uh, profits being a, uh, there's this myth that profits is going to necessarily uh, lead to innovation. And uh, no, this case uh, uh, being, you know, uh, staying still technologically is what pays off uh, in terms of, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's just great. I mean, it also brings to mind, um, the the idea of uh, we, we talked about this when we were talking about uh, Disney some episodes back where Disney will hide the fact that you're still in the line, <laughs> yeah. you know, by oh this is just the lobby. Look, you look at the 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 weird little portraits on the on on the walls, <laughs> and we're going to tell you a little story. It's you're actually right before the ride. No, you're not. You're in a line, buddy. You're in a line. <laughs> You're you're being in, entertained while you're in the line. That's all it is, uh, and and that's exactly this sort of uh, the, the 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 type of logic behind that is this you know sort of like oh you can be uh, you know we have these VIP people first and then you get your turn and so on and yeah. so forth and it just just sort of also um, reinforces the the idea of of meritocracy you know the, yeah you will earn your place in the line. Yeah, and so on. So I've got so. a question for the two authors I'm talking to here. Uh, oh, one, did this book win any awards, and why the hell not? I, 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 I just tweeted that out that it, I find it absolutely criminal. Like the Nebula nominations went out uh, this past week. Uh, and while I may, uh, come across as, as sour grapes, if I were to say that my work is, should have been on there, that's not the case here. I'm just saying it's criminal that this book did not get any nominations. In fact, I'm not even sure, uh, what it's sort of like who thought it was good enough, uh, uh, on the Nebula reading list. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm, hope, I, I'm hoping that I, 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 it was me and another guy. Uh, I think two or three people just uh, added. You know, there no three. That's basically you know uh, some dirty ass comedy got more uh, uh, recommendations than uh, the vanished parts. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I I understand that like everyone loves Murderbot, but this should have been I know. like I, I'm I'm not trying I'm not trying to say that one should replace the other, but okay, yes, I'm saying that I I don't <laughs> think. Okay, sorry, there's man. Uh, th- there's my take on that. Uh, it's a little bit angry. First, uh, I'm not a, cri- a critique. You know, I'm a writer, so I have opinions. I don't have a, I don't uh, say dogmas, so I may be wrong, but. Uh, uh, what I think that uh, this book, which is, in my opinion, the best thing ever in science fiction fantasy in the last uh, eight years, maybe, or more, is uh, 
that uh, it uh, shatters uh, lots of the the the, the of uh, principles that are very uh, 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 present in, in in modern science fiction fantasy. And honestly, that those are things that bore me to bore me so much. And that especially, you know, the uh, the for me we, we discuss many uh, aspects through which uh, the vanished birds innovate, you know. But there's one aspect that I think really hits uh, close to home to lots of those gatekeepers, and it's the fact that it uh, really proposes a new uh, perspective on found family, the found family paradigm as we know it. Uh, you have a, a you know what we. We see and oversee a lot in science fiction and fantasy movies is the, especially uh, science fiction, honestly, especially space opera, you know, is that a community of uh, persons where that individual lands and they'll be very welcome, you know, think back chambers, think Charlie Jane Anders, you know, that and uh, that's valid in a certain way, but at the same time, you know, uh, the principle that those authors uh, convey is that those communities, uh, they are uh, they are perfect, you know, uh, as a sum of imperfective, flawed people. But when they are together, everything gets better, you know, like that uh, Lego movie song. And, yeah, I and mean, that's it, it's so dangerous. It's, uh, yeah, I know? mean, this is this is yeah the the, the crowd that uh, that's valid. That's valid crowd, you know. And sometimes, you know, sometimes if you think like I think you you and I had spoken about this, if you are presenting as a model uh, the idea of found family without touching upon the fact that sometimes sometimes people will be bad, you know, yep. <laughs> uh, and and you have to figure out ways to deal with that, and and not everyone's going to agree, and you know sometimes just talking it out isn't going to work. Uh, you know, I, I think that that's, that leaves you open to thinking that, well, I found my family, but then so-and-so is shitty to me, uh, you know, and you have, you have a personal crisis because you don't know, you haven't seen what, you know, like a model in, in, in any type of the media that you've seen uh, on how to deal with that. And sometimes, you know, you just need to, you know, figure out ways of, either accepting that, you know, oh, well, that's so-and-so is just that way. If it's acceptable, if it's not, then you got to figure out a way. Well, I got to go find another family. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, that, that's what's beautiful in, in The Vanished Birds. You know, it's about fun families, but you know what? The fun family has very dangerous people that, you know, which may, which may can disgrace your life. Or other times, you know, perfect people that are your great friends, they need, they need to part ways, ways, you know, because, uh, you know, they are not ready for what you want to do. So you don't need to, you know, force uh, your project on them. And that's right. fine, you know, separations. And, uh, you know, you can still be friends, but apart. And uh, uh, But no, the fun family project, as we know it, it's all about... It enshrines, you know, the, that 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 concept of that community in a way that, uh, you know, especially uh, in young adult novels, that uh, that might be make you know some reader that's a little bit less experienced in life, experienced in life, uh, very prone to certain abusive people, you know. Mm -hmm. So that it's it's something 
I used to love those narratives until you know I realized you know realized more recently. Yeah, you know what? Uh, it has some uh, elements that are very risky uh, in that. If you don't, you need to. Yeah, so that's why I like uh, I, I like a lot of vanished birds. Uh, it has really the the fun families. You know, they're they're not perfect because you know they're uh, the sum of parts. Uh, just because you know, like most of the literature today in science fiction fantasy advocates. Yeah, I mean, I, on my end, um, I found this to be lovely uh, in, in yeah. the sense that I. I am a sucker for bittersweet and melancholy uh, in my, like, like if you're in, if we left earth, there has to be a reason that we left earth for, right? Because we're, we're not leaving earth because it's just great. We're leaving earth because it's dead. Um, And, and to a certain extent, uh, you know, we wouldn't leave Earth because, honestly, on a cost-benefit analysis, uh, you know, Earth provides oxygen for us without us having to do anything for it. It provides water for us for without us having to expend any energy on it, uh, and and all the the quality we we were born on this planet, right? As a as a species, we wouldn't be leaving it if it if there was any cost and you know, like if there wasn't uh, uh, something that basically foreclosed upon the idea of us getting all that stuff for free. Right. Uh, I, and this is what, I, I'm sorry, I was just going to, Oh, I was go just ahead. Gonna, finish your thought. I was just going to finish my rant. Yeah. The, I think that the issue here is, uh, I mean, obviously part of it is that Simon Jimenez isn't really online. Uh, I, I have not been able to find any online presence of him, uh, okay. apart from like, you know, little blurbs and, and bio information. Yeah. Um, so, so he, he may not have come up on anyone's radar, but even if not, uh, I think that this book posits the idea that you cannot be part of a space opera empire without cost. And that is something that especially U.S. audiences are allergic to because we are convinced, our culture tells us that anything can be overcome. We can do anything and it doesn't have to cost us anything. And it's a very Pollyanna-ish type of way on the one hand where you can have everything and like for instance you can you can uh, you know become who you want to be and but you don't have to sacrifice that to your society you know you don't have to give anything back to it because that's who you are you deserve this and i think that the idea of that there's no built-in optimism into this or at least that there's a a cost to becoming part of this society among the stars is something that probably does not sit well with a lot of the U.S. audience. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sorry, Pete. Go on ahead. I'm sorry. I'm done with my rant. Okay. Well, all I was going to say is that while in general I agree with what you're saying, I I think there are there are like cultural circumstances which could lead to some sort of colony ship. And I'm mostly thinking about things like uh, religion or uh, people, people wanting to get as far away from 
the people here as possible because like the planet can be uninhabitable for somebody and be habitable for someone else. Right. I mean, but, but that's, I think it's, you're, you're thinking along the lines of just basically, uh, Plymouth rock part two. Yeah, exactly. Or, or the Naboo, if we want to go expanse. Mm. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think that you, you do have something there, but in and of itself that then posits, uh, a sort of colonization uh, dilemma, right? Because basically you're assuming that this frontier is yours to take, uh, True. as a human, as a human species. Uh, and I, I think that the other aspect, uh, that I did want to touch upon is the, uh, the other aspect is that this, while it's not, it's not cartoonishly trying to beat you over the head with how horrible Mumbai is, uh, it's pretty clear that Umbai as a corporation, as an entity and as a mercantile quasi governmental uh, entity is awful. They don't care. They don't give a shit about anybody other than, you know, anyone that can give them profits, you know? And I, I think that that's, you know, that's not necessarily something that's particularly uh alien to space operas but i think it's very subtly expressed here yeah so oh, i, I did want to point out oh, i did sorry. i did want to point out that one of the interesting things that i found <laughs> which i knew i was going to find but uh i did find some weird some weird hang-ups that people didn't understand like oh well they started with this character and then they switched over to this character that's risky not my thing and then there was like this uh a couple of people <laughs> were talking about like uh this is sort of like a summary. I'm going to quote uh, when they're summarizing some of the um, the places that they visited when they're sort of just drifting around the periphery. This is a period of 15 years, people. But people got hung up on the fact that uh, uh, Simon uh, describes, you know, the Black Spires, Sounders Outpost Kai, Network Streets of Suda Sulai, the Ice Scapes of Galahad. We've performed countless jobs in places both large and small, delivered vaccinations across continents, escorted three wealthy sisters as a pilgrimage to the old temples of their religion diagnosed the mysterious element that plagued the son of a Primarch prince. And people got upset because, oh, well, why didn't we see any of those places? Like, that would be seven more books. Yeah. Uh, sometimes, you know, when, when Han Solo talks about the Kessel Run, we don't need to see what the Kessel Run is. It would be so much better if they had never mentioned the Kessel Run again. <laughs> Uh, that's uh, yeah I think this book is perfect the way it is but at the same time you know I wonder if uh, the the final 5% you know uh, of the book because basically the final 5% could be another book right so mm -hmm. and I, I keep wondering uh, did uh, Simone Jimenez plan to write a second book but then you know no you need some closure it cannot end it with uh, the boy being taken by Mumbai you know that that for me would be a perfect wrap you know and then have a second book and then that's that's just my perception that it felt a little bit uh, after that a little bit rushed but uh, you know like uh, he was uh, uh, 
feeding uh, f uh, compelled or forced to deliver some closure, you know, that's a, uh, but that's it. Uh, except yeah. for that, you know, oh my God, what, what, a, what a novel. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I, I also agree with your point that it does feel slightly rushed at the end, Yeah, but I was okay with that. I was okay with that yeah, because I'm tries, also, so. yeah, I'm also a big fan of like, okay, so you know what? I'm a big fan of standalone novels too. <laughs> I don't need it to be 17 books. You know, I, I, I could read the one and this one felt very like up until that point, it felt very complete to me and I, I can see the criticism and I agree, but I also understand like, it does, like you said, I, I, it does feel like some sort of an editorial note where they're like, well, do we want to end on a downer like this? Yeah. Yeah. That's how it feels a little bit. And this clearly a, a standalone book. Uh, it doesn't, uh, there's very little about him online. The guy is, he really has a very little presence online. So he gave some very short interviews and, uh, where he talks a little bit about his style, but not much. And uh, but one of the things he says is that uh, his next book is going to be a fantasy novel. So clearly, the Vanished Birds is a is most likely a standalone. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, if he does decide to write another one, I wouldn't say no to it. But at the same time, I feel like this one's done. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. But because of that choice of him to bring that engine, that for me, you know, it could. I wish he had, I, I mean, I, I was sad, you know, I, I, it's one of those books that uh, you want to read more, you know, and uh, oh my God, I'll write, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What makes it an excellent book? That's what makes a, a book good, yeah. I agree. I agree. I mean, I, I, I'd rather, I'd rather as a reader, um, and, and I can totally also see it as a writer. I'd rather leave the audience wanting more than yeah. going like, "Ugh, another one." Yeah. It's like it's like <laughs> when you it's when you tell a child a joke and they're like, "And then what happened?" It's like we mm -hmm. want to hear more. And like this is such a well written book. Uh, it doesn't sound like anybody on this this episode would would second guess him on that. Like I I I would I would hate for him to do fan service and have it not. Uh, be as good as a result, I guess is the way to say it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, yeah, right. You're totally right. I agree. All right. Um, any last thoughts? Given that we probably should wind this down. Uh, uh, if you are, I know. Uh, I was going to say, if you are a Hugo voter, consider voting for the Vanished Birds for the Hugos, but the deadline's over. It's past the right, right? So <laughs> well, we could still we could still get them in for the uh, the Locus, and uh, yeah. I don't know, I don't know who gets to vote on the astound. Well, that's the Hugo, right? Yes, uh, it, it, yes, it's yeah. So yeah. So I guess the Locus uh, <laughs> go onto the Locus list and uh, ask for your poll uh, because anyone, anyone. Anyone who's listening to this and anyone besides can decide to vote for this book. I, I uh, have a crazy idea that I'd like to propose to you guys in brief. We can talk about it more later. You, you know, like the, the sad puppies and the rabid puppies. Yeah. We, we should form the pod side puppies. We should get a voting block together of people who don't normally vote to get in there and Put side puppies. Yeah. Call it, call out the books that we value so much. 
I mean, I think I think that's a valid thing. I mean, I don't know that uh, we could probably blog about it or, or put it on posts or whatnot. Uh, in general, you know, uh, it's it's valid to put out like uh, talk about stuff that you loved, and uh, I really loved this book. I really did, uh, and you know, I, I'm I'm eager to find out what his next book is going to be like. Oh yeah, I, the odds of us not covering it are small. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so I guess Simon, if you're if you're listening to this, uh, please finish writing that book quickly so we can read it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm very sorry about my dog, Simon. Like I I can't control the squeaky ball. I muted through a big chunk of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, anything else? Not for me. Nope. I am. I am content. All right, folks. Thanks for listening in. Uh, go read the Vanished Birds. Uh, if if the last almost hour hasn't convinced you, please listen to me now, uh, and we'll we'll talk to you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye.